0: All right. Hey, uh, some of you may have already heard, and I've heard from a number of you, very kindly. Um, my son, Max, was in a pretty serious motorcycle accident on Friday. Um, There's no head injury or spinal injury. Those things aren't a concern. But his left leg was pretty, pretty severely injured in his hip. Uh, and the morning has not been going very well since I got here. So I'm going to be leaving as soon as the sermon is over. Pray for Max. And uh, I'm going to summon all my compartmentalization skills. And we're going to preach on Zechariah. So, um... If you haven't been here lately, you are stepping into a series that we're doing, Six Weeks on Zechariah, which I'm super excited about. Um, we've spent a couple of weeks looking at it already. Zechariah is what is known as uh, a post-exilic prophet. What that means is that he wrote uh, very late in Israel's history after they had been exiled. They had uh, been disobedient. They had been rebellious for centuries. And God sent prophet after prophet to warn them off this path But they really didn't heed and finally under Nebuchadnezzar, the king of uh, Babylon, he brings in this very, very severe judgment and they are penalized. And the remnant that survives, they're they're set aside in exile for 70 years. And when the remnant comes back and the judgment is over, they were dazed and defeated and demoralized and they wanted to know if they were also discarded. Is it over for us or will the Messiah still come? Through a series of images that are rather bizarre to us, honestly, Zechariah seeks to answer that question and his answer is no, it is not over. The Messiah is still coming and it's not too late for you to end your rebellion and to come under his gracious reign. Zechariah talks so much about the Messiah that the New Testament quotes this book over 70 times, which is extraordinary given what a short little book it is. There's just so much focus here, so much is drawn. And what's crazy is we know the book, it's, it's very unfamiliar to us. The New Testament loved it. And it's filled with treasure and so we, uh, it's important, we want to light it up for you so that you may discover its treasures yourself. Um, This morning's passage contains what I would guess is probably the most well-known part of Zechariah. Um, It's the the image of a king on a donkey. We look at it pretty much every year. Matthew quotes it. Mark quotes it. We look at it uh, on Palm Sunday. It's Jesus' triumphal entry as he comes into Jerusalem. And we'll teach it again in about eight weeks when Palm Sunday comes. But when we do this time, I think you'll have a little bit of a better background to know what it's really all about. So we're going to jump in at chapter 9, verse 9 oh and by the way on the way out you can grab these books if you didn't get one already i made these books of zechariah that had the text and all the new testament allusions to it might be helpful to you as you're following along with us zechariah 9 9 says rejoice greatly daughter zion shout daughter jerusalem see your king comes to you righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey this is, it may look kind of like benign, but it's really extraordinary. And it cuts to the absolute heart of Zechariah's book and his message. He is describing the coming of a king. And when he does so, he says he will be a king on a donkey. To understand what that means, we're going to need to first go on another detour with a couple of crucial stops. So we're going to go all the way back again, like we did when we started this thing, back to Genesis, okay? So um, when, when Adam himself was placed in the garden, he was in the garden, both king and priest, okay? Now, it would take more time than we really have to fully unpack that, but when I say that he was king, that might be obvious to you because to Adam was given creation. He was told, rule over creation, subdue it. Rule over every living creature. He was king in that garden, but he was also priest, right? And that's a little bit harder to see. Um, and it, Again, I could persuade you if I had the time, but he... Uh, the, the, the garden was the place where God walked with man it's where he met him it was the place where the first sacrifice was offered and in fact all of the subsequent temples were modeled after the garden that's why there's pomegranates and palm trees that's why their gate opens to the east the, the, what they're showing us is that all the temples were pointing back to the first temple which was the garden and the one who reigns in the temple is the priest Adam was king and priest problem was He wasn't very good at it. And very quickly his throne got usurped by a serpent and the priest came to need a priest. Someone that would stand in between he and and God himself. And so in the providence of God, this king priest, the the jobs were split up. God determined he would create a nation from one man, Abraham, and from Abraham, Isaac, from Isaac, Jacob, and from Jacob's 12 sons. There would be a sort of a separation of powers where God decided that that the kings of the land would come from the descendants of who? Judah, and the priests of the land would come from the descendants of? Levi, Levi. okay, very much. And, because nobody could, it's like we've noticed throughout history, we're not very good kings, we're not very good priests, and there ain't anybody very good at being both. And so he splits it up, Uh, but it was a temporary split. The plan, the purpose all along was to reunify the kings and the priests. Um, One day, this temporary division would come to an end and the messiah would come and he would be both king and priest he would do well at everything that we can't even do well at half of and that in fact was the subject of last week's passage in zechariah 6 that one man would be both king and priest and would finally do what adam couldn't today what we're going to do is look at the king side of that story and in order to do that, then we need to look at that promise that was made. When, when you guys all said, uh, the kings come from Judah, you're exactly right. And that the event, the moment where that's made clear is in Genesis chapter 49. So you can turn there. We'll have it on screen. This is Genesis 49. Um, Abraham is speaking to all of his sons, all 12 of his kids, and he's kind of speaking over their life. This is what will be true of your life. This will be true in your life. And in verse 8, it says, Judah, your brothers will praise you, and your hand will will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. It's king language. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. This is why Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. And in verse 10, you get to the heart of the promise. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation's shall be his he will tether his donkey to a vine his colt to the choicest branch right there in the middle of 4910 is the heart of the promise you can see it right there the scepter would not depart from judah meaning from judah would come the kings the scepter is the symbol of kingship but you get an idea that all of the kings of judah every one of them is just a little king And they rule merely over Israel alone while they're waiting for the true king, the great king, to come. And he will rule over everything. Look at verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nations shall be his. They were to hold the scepter until the real king came. And the obedience of the nations would be his. You may notice too that he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. Okay, more on that in a minute. But the people in Zechariah's day, they knew this was a big one, you guys. They knew this promise. And when they heard Zechariah 9, they absolutely would have known that this is an homage back to Genesis 49, that 49, 10, and 11 are still going to be fulfilled. The king with the donkey is still going to come. And this would have been an enormous relief to them. I'm not sure if it's obvious to you why this would have caused them to rejoice so much. But the thing is, all of the little kings here, they had been benched. No more little kings. Okay? I don't know if you've ever noticed that. But Genesis 49 has this image of this unbroken chain of kings leading up to the king. But just think about it. When Jesus came, when the Messiah finally arrived, who was the king of Israel? There was no king of Israel. The kings had been, for like centuries, there had been no king over Israel, right? The image here is that these little kings would keep the throne warm for him. But that's not what happened. That is not the way history played out. Not at all. So here's the thing. The promise of Genesis 49 really has two parts. One, there will always be little Judean kings over Israel, right? The scepter will not depart from them. Click, 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 click. And part two, the real king would come. The Messiah would come. The great king would come. They would hold it till he shows up. But part one was set aside and we crossed them all out. There would be no more kings of Judah. We got to the point where they were done. And they knew it and they feared that maybe part two is over as well maybe the whole thing is just blown but if they would paid close attention they would have known that when god explicitly shut down the first part he explicitly affirmed reaffirmed the second part it all happens and is in Ezekiel 21 it's kind of it's going to feel obscure to you I'm sure but they would have known it in Ezekiel 21 28 listen to this and with with Genesis 49 in your ears listen to what is said listen to Ezekiel's message to these rebellious people it says in verse 28 o profane and wicked prince of Israel whose day has come whose time of punishment has reached its climax this is what the sovereign Lord says take off the turban remove the crown it will not be as it was the lowly will be exalted and the exalted will be brought low a ruin a ruin i will make it a ruin it will not be restored until he comes to whom it rightfully belongs to him i will give it do you hear the echo of genesis 49 in this no more turban no more crown those are the the symbols of kingship those are the scepter right It's gone, it's over, it's done. You are benched and there will be no more kings. You profane and wicked princes, sit down. But do you also hear the reaffirmation of the second part? Look at verse 27. A ruin, a ruin, I will make it a ruin. It will not be restored until he comes to whom it rightfully belongs, to him I will give it. Judah lost the right to pass the throne to the Messiah, but the Messiah is still coming. The king with a donkey of Genesis 49 is still coming. There will be centuries of empty throne before he arrives, but he's coming. Get it? Okay, now back to Zechariah 9. Zechariah nine. 9 it says rejoice rejoice greatly daughter Je- daughter zion shout daughter jerusalem see your king comes to you right this is the question of zechariah is the king still coming the answer is yes he is the, he is coming it is not over so rejoice but there might linger in their minds the one to question well that's good but what's he going to be like do we still get a king on a donkey where have we earned ourselves a harsh king? What's gonna happen? And this is the next thing that Zechariah answers. Now, to help you understand it, to help you kind of see it, I wanna take you to what is my favorite Clint Eastwood movie. It's called Gran Torino. Have any of you guys seen it? Okay. It's a it's a great film. Um, but it's not It's scarcely possible to show a clip from it in this sanctuary, (laughs) but it's so good, okay? In it, Eastwood plays a man named Mr. Kowalski, and he is a grouchy, old, racist white guy. He fought in Korea. uh, He married a woman. He raised his family in this neighborhood, but his wife has died, and all the white people moved out, and all of these immigrants moved in. And he's just mad at everyone and everything. He's just a super grouchy, racist guy. And like anything that's happening in his neighborhood. But as the story unfolds, he befriends this one particular family of immigrants, including their teenage son and their teenage daughter, Tao and Sue. And while he honestly never really stops being grouchy or racist, he loves them. And the climax of the movie comes after Sue is brutally assaulted by a gang. And everyone in this neighborhood is just living in fear because this gang is just so evil. Um, I want to show you the, the scene, um, but I can't. <laughs> so we're not going to do that. I'm going to need to describe it to you. Um, but as I do, what I want you to do, I want you to keep, keep Zechariah 9 in mind, okay? In fact, let's look at it first, and then we'll, and then we'll jump back into it. In Zechariah 9, notice this complex picture Of what this coming king will be like. It says. See your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious. Lowly. And riding on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. He is on the one hand righteous and victorious. And he is lowly on a donkey. And those are different things. Zechariah 9. As he depicts this king. He shows that he's taking away the chariots. And the war horses. And the battle bows. He will bring global peace he will free prisoners those tend to be things that are accomplished by might right you just roll in you fix it and so it's a little strange that this king is described as lowly perhaps even stranger maybe that his work is described as being fueled by and I quote the blood of my covenant with you As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Okay? So back to Gran Torino, in this neighborhood, there is no peace. There is no well-being because of this. They're all being terrorized by this gang, In particular, the family, but really everyone is. And Mr. Kowalski has come to love Sue and Tao. And so he's got to fix it. It's a Clint Eastwood movie. And so in a typical Eastwood flick, He would just roll into town and kill everybody and we would leave the theater rejoicing (laughs) at his ferocity and his might but not this time here kowalski goes to the home where the gang members are living and he stands in the street and he just rebukes them and they all come out on the porch and they're all fully armed you know guns automatic weapons And they start cussing him out. And he is just going after them. He just rebukes them. He tells them exactly how evil they are. And the neighbors are all watching. All the neighbors have come out to just watch this scene. And uh, Mr. Kowalski is highly confrontational. And then he pulls out an unlet cigarette, cigarette. And he puts it in his mouth. And then he reaches into his breast pocket to get a cigarette lighter. Knowing that they will interpret this, misinterpret this as if he's reaching for his gun and that they will gun him down, which they do. In about five seconds, he gets shot like 40 times and he falls to the ground dead. And in that very moment, he defeated them. They don't know it, but at the exact second that they struck his heel. He crushed their head because they shot and killed an unarmed man in front of the entire neighborhood. And those gang members all get arrested. They all get carted off to jail for committing murder. And he wins. He purchases peace for this neighborhood. But he wins by losing. He gave his life. He gave his blood in a certain sort of a covenant for the ones that he loved. Now, Clint Eastwood, he not only starred in this movie, but he also directed it and produced it. And when I was watching the scene, I was just wondering, like, does he know what he's doing? Does he, does, he, does he understand that the inspiration for this very scene is the self-sacrificial cross of Christ, who also won by losing, who also, who defeated Satan, freeing his people by allowing himself to be killed. I wanna show you the only 30 seconds of this film that can be shown. (laughs) But before we do, don't play it, dark, dark, dark. It's a dark scene and I need it as pitch dark as we can make it in here. Kill these suckers, everything down, nice and dark. Okay, watch the scene. Do you think he knew? I think he knew. Lying on his back with so his arms are outstretched, blood pouring from his wrist. Not only did Clint Eastwood know exactly what he was doing, but he wanted you to know. Stories like this, you guys, they captivate us because built into our hearts. Alan, do you want to just join me on stage and just preach about this? This is, Alan knows this. like built into our hearts is the reality that the stories that we love are the stories that echo the gospel. Every good story in some way has to borrow its themes from the crucified one. Because Jesus himself quotes this moment in Zechariah when he served the disciples the last supper. But he changed it ever so slightly. In Zechariah, God spoke of, quote, the blood of my covenant. Which is an allusion back to Exodus 24. But when Jesus quotes it, he brings it forward. And nails it unmistakably to his cross, and he says, "This is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins." You guys, Jesus is the righteous and victorious King. The one to whom the, throat, the, the throne rightfully belongs has come, and it's his. God has given it to him. The cosmos is his to reign, and he earned it. He earned it through lowliness. His weakness was his strength. His folly was his wisdom. He went to the lowest place and was therefore exalted to the highest place. He is the fulfillment of Genesis 49. He is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 21. He is the righteous, victorious, lowly king on a donkey of Zechariah 9. He is the king. And he leads a kingdom ruled by mercy, kindness by love and by sacrifice and the question is is he your king he invites you to come out of the domain of darkness and into his kingdom of light and you can come right now it can all be yours in fact what we do every week we have a moment designed for you to come down these curved rails where you can meet alone with him and just speak to him maybe it's clear for the first time ever you want to go to the straight rails and pray with somebody that would love to talk to you whatever's going on in your life those are open for you he invites you to come to come out of the domain of darkness into the king, into the kingdom of light but i will warn you everything is upside down here in jesus's kingdom the first are last and the last are first we win by losing we gain by giving up everything our time our talent our treasures they're spent for the good of others we admit it when we're wrong we apologize we make restitution we consider others needs as more important than our own i mean it's it's a strange kingdom but oh what a king he is rich in mercy he is great in power and in him is met the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies What that means is that he is highly exalted and yet he communes with the lowly. He is a ferocious lion and he's a gentle lamb. He is infinitely worthy to receive good and infinitely patient and suffering evil. We invite you, bend the knee before his supremacy, come into his kingdom. Father, we love you, we exalt you. And I pray that we would come into this kingdom. We thank you for sending us such a good king. A good king and a good priest. I pray that we would live in your grace. Amen. All right, I'm leaving. Pray for Max. Thank you, friends.